one of my students asked me, you know, why, why do they murder climate activists in Brazil? And I said, yes, why do they murder climate activists in Brazil, not in Stuttgart, you know, and not in Brandenburg? It's not that, you know, Brazilian people are more evil. It's just that necropolitics and extractive regimes work in certain ways. The exercise of power spatialized. You can have a basic illusion of uh, liberal democracy in the West, whereas, you know, the people who are organizing in those sites where production, where extraction takes place, are murdered. Once that extraction has already taken place, I mean, you can block, you know, supply chains as many people try to do. But the point of extraction is really, really important. And I think I think that question should be taken seriously. Why are people murdered in the global south we hear every week? Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I am broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. To learn more about the episode or to find information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. This episode, Season 2, Episode 7, I interview Mahir Sharma. Mahir is a researcher with the group Anthropology of Global Inequalities at the University of Beirut in Germany, where he also teaches courses in political anthropology. His current research project deals with social movements, race, class, and activism in St. Louis. Thank you so much, Mahir, for joining us today on the Decolonization and Action podcast. Thank you, Edna, for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Your work cuts across at the intersections of racial justice in Ferguson, Missouri, as well as social movements here in Germany. Can you tell me about how you began your research practice and give examples of how that relates to your activist work? So I work in St. Louis um, in Missouri, and um, which is the broader sort of area around uh, of which Ferguson is a part. Uh, Ferguson is part of uh, St. Louis County, and uh, I work in St. Louis City mainly, but also a little bit of the county. Um, so I started with this project uh, also because I was socialized as a late teenager uh, in the U.S. amidst sort of anti-racist organizing uh, on college campuses as a part uh, of an organization called Students Organized Against Racism. And then Occupy Wall Street hit and sort of the class analysis uh, slipped into that as a 20-year-old and I was fortunate enough to go to Mexico and, and we learned from the Zapatista movement and all of this sort of coalesced in an interest uh, in going back, sort of say, so to say, to the U.S. and working on sort of current movements uh, as an anthropologist and not, uh, one, I didn't want to work on South Asia, you know, to reproduce the trope of the native informant, sort of report on how my grandmother did all the amazing things my grandmother did, which, you know, are numerous, but I didn't want to report on that. And I wanted to work on and work with rather movements that I also wanted to learn about and learn from. So that's how I landed up in St. Louis uh, after a series of very uh, fortunate encounters with advisors and activists who were very generous with their time. So it's interesting what you bring up. As someone of South Asian descent, you decided that not to just study South Asian history or South Asian descended relations, but to think about what is happening with anti-Black racism and perhaps some points of convergence. 
in some ways, this Indian and Black solidarity practice in respect to intellectual and activist traditions is something that has a, a kind of relationship in the anti-colonial period. What kind of ways do you see yourself thinking about that, like Bandung conference, anti-colonial struggle, and what was being done in the 40s and 50s? versus like now in terms of these perhaps maybe potential links that could be happening on an international scale between South Asian and anti-racist work in amongst Black people? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's a really important one and it's a really fraught one. So I think it's very generous of you to say that there's in the anti-colonial movement a lot of alliances because I think from, if I have to be self-critical, especially from sort of the South Asian and the alliances uh, seem to be at best strategic and, if I may, opportunistic uh, when it comes to supporting, you know, proletarian black struggle, right? I mean, uh, there have been a lot of alliances among sort of the ruling elites, whether it's South African ruling elites who happen to be black and, and the reformist ANC period with sort of nominal socialists in India and Pakistan, or Pakistan didn't really uh, have that same trajectory, but the nominal socialists in India siding with whom they call their black brothers and sisters. The first debate that I think is very interesting, maybe also for your listeners, is a debate between Du Bois and Rabindranath Tagore, who's you know an upper caste man with a sort of liberal left ideals. And Du Bois asks him this question. He says, you know, well, y'all have this debate tendency to become Aryan at some point, and I like, claim that. Claim your Aryanness. So what's what's with that? Are you going to be the be with us, or are you going to be in service of white supremacy? And I think this question is less than resolved, especially in the U.S. context. I mean, there's a really good article on the N Plus One magazine called "White Indians," which deals with sort of you know the, the fact that the H one H one B visa regime has led to you know a certain class and caste of Indians to go to the U.S. and work as sort of you know tech workers, doctors, and so on has led to, you know, their positioning, not with the black and brown people that we speak of in terms of proletarian politics, but allegiance to whiteness and anti-blackness that, that results from it. So I think the struggle is, is tough because at the one level, racialized brown folk in the West claim POC status when it's convenient. And then a lot of us are also upper caste and, you know, are absolutely blind about uh, caste in the, in the South Asian context. There's another part to that. I appreciate you describing that nuance, complication, particularly not only the class background and, and the ways in which the United States has, particularly in the post-World War II context, been active about getting and recruiting South Asians and East Asians too from an upper class and in many cases pitting one group and other groups against each other and the dynamics between people being part of a broader people, color, or POC uh, identity and what role that has, but then there still being this anti-blackness, a, a kind of racial color line that then reproduces hierarchies within communities of color, even within the West. So I wanted to think and talk a little bit about colonialism. And I wanted to ask, how do you think coloniality is coded in activist spaces or groups within the European context where you conduct work, as well as within the United States? I think one way to begin thinking about this, I think, would be to, to ask a sort of genealogical, but also maybe like a philosophical question as to how, you know, climate activism becomes its own thing. When and in what circumstances and by, uh, by whose 
volition, does climate activism become its own thing, right? Klimaaktivismus or uh, Klimagerechtigkeitskampagnen in German. I mean, how does it become its own thing? And um, I mean, even within the West, there's a trajectory of sort of, you know, the what was called the environmental movement. I mean, there's the emergence of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth as sort of these like rural green uh, movements. But I mean, there's a much broader history, which doesn't call itself a climate movement, which, you know, Nick Estes and others have written about 500 year long struggle, as a lot of Native American folks call it, which doesn't see itself just as a climate movement, right? So that's maybe the first mode of coloniality where perhaps departmentalization of issues as a critique, as a self-critique, although I think we at this time when with the rise of fascism everywhere, maybe we should be a little uh, milder on ourselves. But nonetheless, I think as a point of self-critique, then we seek to decolonize sort of these departments, right? Mm -hmm. So decolonize climate activism. Whereas, you know, as, as somebody wrote a recent article, you know, decolonizing museums, they said, would mean decolonize, decolonizing the funding institutions, which mean decolonizing everything, right? I mean, that's essentially what it's about. I often think of communism as an um, emancipatory project that most black and brown people were involved in in the 20th century. This was the big project uh, of the 20th century of emancipation, at least in its various forms, from Maoism to uh, Marxist-Leninist projects and so on. Can you think of communizing museums? Can we think of applying communism partially to a certain aspects? And it would very soon become obvious that that is a practical impossibility that you could you know communize a building or so on but that you know within the structures of capitalism that would be sort of a stopgap arrangement right that would be something that you work from and not stop at so i was just wondering like how does the climate movement become the climate movement but actually the first question that I started with were this debate in germany how wide is the climate movement and the second question, which I was stunned by, uh, which was posed at a public climate school in, uh, at the University of Bayreuth, where I teach, where a professor of economics asked me what capitalism has to do with climate change. So I thought, well, uh, it doesn't seem obvious, uh, obviously, to a lot of folks. And so I, not to you know, demean anyone, but to think of if these connections haven't been made, then how might we think of creative ways of making them instead of sort of, you know, trying to talk down to folks and say, well, you haven't made the same realizations that a lot of us have been forced to make. It was that impulse that I started with sort of examining coloniality in activism. And then like a few things happened last year. One was that Extinction Rebellion USA in several places had a split around questions of race and foregrounding impacted communities where, you know, the sort of mainstream, if I can call them that, just refused to engage with these questions. The second, I think, was uh, within the Linke in Germany, the left party and the left movements, there was a pandering to racist sentiments. Mm -hmm. uh, with The idea was that, you know, these people are going over to the right. So, you know, with the whole discourse of the, the small man, the, the kleiner man, and so on, uh, that we need to, that we need to get them over. And this might just be a strategic way of doing that, right? And this is obviously disastrous. It's not the first time that the left has tried to write, but especially in terms of racism. Now the borders are shut and protest is banned, except, of course, Pegida and Dresden who were allowed to march. So I think this is the climate in which it's actually maybe more urgent to think about coloniality, right? Because either the mainstream doesn't have a clue how to go about 
approaching BIPOC-centered politics, assuming they actually are willing to engage with it, right? So we're not, we're leaving out all those people who, who you know, don't want to engage with it, right? So there's, let's assume there's a critical mass of people who actually, you know, are eager and want to be accomplices in this struggle together with BIPOC coalitions. What happens then? They also are unaware of how they are colonized deeply. They are the offspring of people who were forced off their lands in Germany and uh, had to develop new ways of belonging, which, you know, you talk about the whole Heimat movement in the 19th century with proletarianization. And, you know, some of these movements go right wing in the 20th century and become Nazism and and other forms of conservative uh, movements. But also, I mean, it's astonishing to me how many Germans are unaware of their own genealogies, this progress-oriented sort of forward-looking bias that us moderns have inherited from, you know, the, the bad parts of the Enlightenment legacy, where we think, you know, the best is yet to come. And I mean, I don't know if that's so obvious to most people in the world, especially if you talk of 1492 being a critical rupture for most of the world, the majority world. Uh, one of the ways in which coloniality is embedded in activism, especially climate activism, is that I find it really impressive how far the German left has gone in terms of examining, you know, how capital works and so on. But what I'm really disappointed about is that, you know, this solidarity doesn't extend to, uh, you know, an internationalist frame. So, I mean, German multinationals are everywhere. Bolivia just had a coup. They had a right-wing coup. And this is how I experienced it. So at my university, there were lectures by people who worked for the German Development Agency uh, who were not academics, you know, justifying the coup uh, as sort of a, you know, a democratic step because the because apparently Evo was uh, anti-democratic. And now, don't get me wrong, like, I bring this case up because, you know, there's German multinationals like Akisa and Potosi mining lithium. And these deals were made just before the coup happened. And I cannot imagine that, you know, you don't have to be indigenous activist or solidarity with indigenous movement. You could just follow capital. You could follow German capital and arrive at the same conclusion. If you speak of colonial continuities in activism, I mean, Potosi should be, or like mining sites in general, or extractive sites, let's just say, should be at the forefront of German intersectional, what they call climate activism. Because, of course, if production, you know, is not just RWE in Lausitz and, uh, you know, Nordrhein-Westfalen and so on, it's also... The majority of it on which the German sort of beneficiaries are from sites like Potosi and so on. And Cervantes writes about this site in Don Quixote, right? Uh, and as a mining town which made the Spanish crown really rich and so on. And what's interesting is that uh, I looked up a little bit of a critical history by Brett Gustafsson, who works with Eva Morales actually, into Potosi and sort of the worker struggles in Potosi. And it's interesting because you know, the native population who was enlisted, forced into indentured labor in this uh, site in the, in the 16th century, almost died off. And that's why they had to bring in enslaved persons from the African continent. There's a clear link between the use of human labor and enslaved labor of colonized peoples and technology. The case of Potosi is interesting because this German company based in Stuttgart, uh, Akisa, is heavily involved there and there's these shady deals that remain to be researched around extractive in industries there. And I think this is one way in which the German left, you know, if they were to chase these questions, justice left, the climate movements, if they were to chase these questions, I think they would arrive at contradictions 
which would lead them to the kinds of questions that the BIPOC groups have been raising and are forced to raise from the outside repeatedly, are forced to form their coalitions on the side. I mean, as if living in the margins was enough, that you have to also do that. To the second part of your question, to who are they visible? Uh, I mean, they're very shortly, um, they're visceral and they're visible and they're lethal. I think first and foremost for indigenous populations around the world, and then for populations of color in the global south, proletarian populations, I would say, one of my students asked me, you know, why, why did they murder climate activists in Brazil? And I said, yes, why do they murder climate activists in Brazil, not in Stuttgart, you know, and not in Brandenburg? It's not that, you know, Brazilian people are more evil. It's just that necropolitics and extractive regimes work in certain ways. The exercise of power is spatialized. You can have a basic illusion of uh, liberal democracy in the West, whereas, you know, the people who are organizing in those sites where production where extraction takes place, are murdered. Once that extraction has already taken place, I mean, you can block, you know, supply chains as many people try to do, but the point of extraction is really, really important. And I think, I think that question should be taken seriously. Why are people murdered in the global South? We hear every week. I really appreciate you describing different dimensions of the climate justice movement and the kind of weaknesses, both theoretical and practical, within them. So on the one hand, the question around the social movements and a kind of uh, perhaps erasure of BIPOC or Black, Indigenous and other people of color from the mainstream face of what climate activism might look like and, and the way that that gets articulated and how there's not um, more alliances and or uh, meaningful connections that can actually help to reshape and reshuffle that activism, especially since many people who are from indigenous, black, global South communities are the ones who are disproportionately impacted by the climate. But then this other element, which is what is the accountability of uh, Western, Northern, European, American corporations and industries that profit from that crisis? And what could the left do to actually challenge directly the, the multinational corporations that are, are benefiting from that? And how do they make their, their governments and, and private corporations accountable? A very similar thing happens with, for example, war. And at the end of the day, the United States, Germany, France, the UK profit from selling weapons to the Middle East. And if one wants to build an anti-war movement that actually challenges capital and the beneficiaries of that, then that means actually targeting the companies that produce those weapons. My work has also looked at the relationship between anti-war movements and who profits from the war industry, and that's often people from the global north, and what role that has with respect to building actual coalitions that target capital directly. The thing around necropolitics, which I find interesting, is what does it mean for people who are protesting in the climate justice movement to have very different responses from the state, depending on where they are? In the case of Brazil, in the case of Standing Rock, in the case of so many places where uh, people might be targeted with militarization and extreme force. And here in Germany, it might come with, well, a slap on the wrist, if not anything. <laughs> and, and it becomes very rhetorical and symbolic and seen as heroic. And so... What, do we, what does it mean for when black and brown bodies are very much criminalized in the context of climate justice movements? How do we reckon with those differences is something that I, I think is it's a live question. And it might mean is that white left-leaning sympathetic comrades would have to step it up <laughs> to show that they won't allow for that. Like an actual anti-racist struggle would mean doing the work of knowing that these things are happening and actually putting 
their decolonization into action. So given that, what kinds of solutions do you think would be possible to put anti-racism more concretely into the climate justice movements? In your question, there's also another podcast episode where I think somebody should interview you. The, the frame of anti-war activism and how it emerges over the course of the 20th century, right? It's mm -hmm. such an interesting topic because I think there's a lot of parallels to what we're talking about, especially around, you know, how anti-war appears as a specific frame in itself. There's anti-war, anti-Iraq war, anti-Vietnam war, but then there's all these, you know, colonial wars like the Algerian struggle and so on. And so I'd be so interested in actually listening to an episode where, you know, you talk about that and draw links to the present. So that's, sorry, that's just like, <laughs> that's just for the, I think that, that should happen. <laughs> To your question, there's two parts to the question, if I got it correctly. One is about how do you take light of the fact that there's a certain way in which the state or authorities respond to racialized bodies doing climate activism. And the second question is how might sort of mainstream movements work to, to be in solidarity and work to incorporate BIPOC perspectives into and bodies, right? Um, into climate movements. There's a lot of parallels between sort of what we call old social movements, or nobody says that, but you know, the, the things that came before new social movements, sort of like labor organized struggles, so like uh, class-based, let's just say class-based movements, right, in, the, in Europe and the US. Now, what is interesting, especially in the US uh, and in the European context is that these class-based movements were often structurally ex excluding um, folks of color and structurally, which I mean, you know, they, it's not that, you know, they were, they were like racists to their faces. They structurally excluded union members or union membership based on migrant status, based on race in the American South, especially in the Midwest even. I mean, people give the South a bad name, but I mean, if you look at the union organizing uh, in the North, in St. Louis, there's a black union, there's a white union to this day. This is partly because of their racist exclusionary history of unions. Similarly, I think if we don't actually, I don't know who the we might be here, but uh, I think if the mainstream climate movement doesn't take into account its blind spots uh, and its, its actually necessary solidarities, right? Because if you have to work with the majority world, you kind of have to reform your politics and the forms of politics to be able to form those alliances, right? We cannot have Zoom seminars at this point uh, in the Corona times because, you know, most of the world doesn't have internet and there have to be other ways. And I don't mean to say, you know, we have to fly around, but, you know, when I was in uh, Zapatista territory in, in Mexico, they asked me not about, you know, some socialist vision of uh, Indian politics. They recognized me as Indian. They asked me what contacts I had to the Maoists and the indigenous people in the forests. That among the Zapatistas, you know, they see people struggling against oil and mining um, struggles in the Congo Basin, Nigeria and elsewhere. And indigenous folks, Adivasis in uh, South Asia, fighting against also extractive policies as their contemporaries and colleagues. And, you know, despite their very, very meager resources and harsh repression of the state, they meet up and talk about what to do. Now, I ask, you know, the mainstream movements uh, in many meetings that I've attended and continue and will hopefully continue to attend in Germany, you know, what is your connection to 
what Nick Estes calls the 500 year long struggle in America. And then they're like, well, you know, America, and then there's waves referring to America, you know, race is an American problem and so on. And uh, the German left, you know, took ages just to like confront the word race. They didn't want to use the German word, Rasse, mm -hmm. to refer to, to human persons, but they did refer to Rasse when they refer to dogs and non-human animals. Mm -hmm. So the word survives, but somehow, Rasse was something that Nazis did apparently, so it doesn't exist anymore, or we shouldn't talk about it. And so race is something we take, but then of course it's more pronounced in the US because we know the police is much worse in the US. I'm being sarcastic here, right? There's this like taboo around using the word race and racism to, to refer to racism and racializations uh, within Germany, of which you know we have more than enough examples and people you know shouting at the top of their voices on the streets literally every year and every you can every you can go to a black lives matter demonstration in several cities in germany you can go to a range of other demonstrations around racism especially around hanau what is our relatedness to these past movements that have come and that exist still that are longer and sort of have a more entrenched critique of modernity. The second point would be to recognize the liberalism in ourselves, right? This is, I mean this out of all the love and solidarity for all the liberal folks who, you know, want to effect a change in the world, to recognize the limits of liberalism. And so many people have talked about this, the limits of what Arundhati Roy calls a bourgeois environmentalism, that which seeks change without changing. I think it should be very clear to uh, mainstream folks in climate activism in Germany that a transition to green energy in national borders is not going to save anyone, mm -hmm. right? We have to focus on questions of degrowth, redistribution, and so on. And I mean, if we are to decolonize, you know, I think of what might this word mean? And uh, I made a short list, I made, of like what decolonization has to be about, what it could be about, and what it shouldn't be about. Um, so decolonization, I think, has to be about the means of production and who owns them or who shares them and how they are shared. It has to be about land and it has to be about reparations. Or if you want to be politically correct, redistribution in the realm of the sort of white left. And it has to be a horizon for the struggle of the oppressed. Uh, it has to be ecologically minded, queer feminist, and it has to be about self-determination. Now, when I say these things, uh, a lot of sort of philosophers, you know, are like, uh, jump to, you know, what their contradictions, self-determination for whom, you know, there's, it's self-determination is always a contradiction. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, people say that people who bring up that self-determination is a contradiction, you know, come from bourgeois positions. Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. You know, <laughs> self-determination is not a contradiction for people struggling for self-determination. Could be about communism, but that would have to be 21st century communism, and we'd have to look, take a deep look at both the failures as well as the successes and excesses of communist projects in the 20th century. It could be also, of course, an anarchist-communist fusion and I think the Kurdish revolutionary struggle and the Zapatistas are among the two most well-known cases and by no means the only cases, right, of these attempts. I think it could mean abolitionism mm -hmm. um, uh, to take the sort of, uh, you know, uh, black radical suggestion. And I think abolitionism in the sort of North American context could also very well have these parallels that sort of like Asian, African, Bandung mobilizations of decolonization were trying to do, I think, I think the impulse is very similar 
and the the, the goals are very similar. Uh, I think it could mean or should mean uh, debt cancellation, mm-hmm. um, and it could also mean that a lot of these things have unintended consequences. Decolonization, in this sense, well-meaning folks who want to decolonize climate activism, I think what they should not do in terms of decolonization, that decolonization should not remain obviously a metaphor, but also it should not remain a synonym only for the politics of diversity, and it should not just be limited to the issue of representation or the lack thereof. I think that representation is really important and that it's a very important step in self-determination and self-assertion. But I think uh, that this is not the limit of decolonization, nor should decolonization be uh, synonymous with this. I think it should not become a niche for academic publications where in 20 years we talk about a book, you know, where some academics with links to the IMF wrote not about Thomas Sankara and Abdullah Ocalan, but about the millions of academic publications uh, taking apart the term decolonization. I don't think that's what it should be about. I think it should be about the Lakota struggle for self-determination in the 21st century as much as about the 20th century Thomas Sankara's and you know, Abdullah Shalam and so on. What decolonization has to offer in a very genuine and meaningful way and one that is tied to material conditions. Because at the end of the day, the dispossession of indigenous people, the stolen wealth from African descended people, whether it's through colonialism and slavery, and the abject dehumanization of people who have for generations, 500 years, been dispossessed very much contributes to a situation where you cannot ignore and pretend that we're all on an equal level <laughs> playing field. And even beyond that, the, the issue that you raised with respect to Lhasa and the Deutsch and German and how people are shy to kind of describe and talk about what that might mean. And, you know, of course, race is a social construct, but that social construct, as Barbara Jean Fields has pointed out, a racecraft is a real phenomenon that people experience. It can determine how much you're paid. It can t- determine how healthy you are, if you die from the plague or <laughs> coronavirus or not. And you know, to ignore that is, is quite disingenuous, in my opinion. And it doesn't account for the, the real sociological impacts that entire populations can face and continue to face that are part of the legacies of colonialism, of slavery, of mass wealth that is stolen from us. And thinking seriously about reparations distribution of wealth, basically shaking up capitalism and making capital accountable. If we are concerned about any kind of genuine justice, we have to think about that. So I want to end on a two-part question. What are you reading right now in this current age? And how do you find the reading that you are engaging in, or even just some of the activities that you are engaging in, inspirational or joyful in a moment where we have to deal with a major pandemic? Yeah. Um... Thanks for that question. I think it's a, it's a really cool question, actually, because some of the questions that, um, that you asked earlier in some ways have nothing to do with my answer here. I give a shout out to Adam Gitauchu's book, which is amazing. Uh, it's called World Making After Empire. It has taught me more about decolonization, actual material struggles, and especially on the African continent mm-hmm. um, than almost any other historical book at least about the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's what I'm uh, going through for the second time now for a course I'm teaching. And then um, Anand Teltumbre's The Republic of Caste. Mm-hmm. Anand was just arrested by the Indian government on a bogus charge, uh, along with several other people. And an elderly man who's been fighting for the rights of Dalits and 
uh, well, you could say uh, the rights of all of us all. And uh, this book is, I think, um, inspiring in the sense that it does not seek to look at uh, the narrative arc of Dalit politics as either a tragedy or heroism, but rather um, has a very sort of grounded sense of struggle and struggle as an ongoing necessary, but also, you know, in terms of like joyful militancy as a metaphor, as something that is part of becoming revolutionary subject, even as, you know, you, you engage in revolutionary politics. Yeah, those two books. And then in terms of fiction, rereading one of my favorite books uh, by Blanche Boyd, it's called The Redneck Way of Knowledge. Uh, that's what I'm reading apart from my courses. There's a lot of COVID-related literature since I'm teaching a class on pandemics. So it's very interesting to me there, since we are, you know, talking on this podcast about, you know, climate activism and so on. Uh, if I could just mention that the kinds of questions that people are focusing on under these conditions is also very emblematic of where they come from. So what their sort of unreflected, maybe unconscious subjectivities are and what they inform in terms of politics, right? What are the questions that they inform? I mean, this is like obvious to a lot of us working in the human sciences or like working in uh, BIPOC coalitions. But I think the, the veneer of this neutral universalist subject, if I could like add one point connecting to the previous points I made, is so um, problematic and almost destructive. This is really reflected in the kinds of questions that are being asked in German scholarship and media. Although I have to say there's also a lot of people, you know, who are reflecting very critically on not thinking in national frames and so on. So that's that's the way in which the reading I'm doing, I think, is reflecting on. And then I think uh, in terms of since you asked reading, uh, I want to add to that, giving a shout out to oral traditions that I also listen to your podcast <laughs> and sincerely on my runs, especially. And then along with yours, I listen to The Dig and uh, Revolutionary Left Radio and Tupolka's podcast in German, which is great. Thank you so much for joining us and for providing your wonderful insight about decolonization, the climate justice movement, and just the history of coalitions, as well as the current ways in which people are organizing today in Germany and the United States and beyond. I really appreciate your insight. Yo, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this talk and I, I hope you make that anti-war podcast right now. <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> My name is Edna Bonhomme and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. And this episode featured socially distant voices based in Berlin, Germany. During season two, we'll occasionally provide coronavirus-related perspectives featuring decolonial activists, scientists, historians, migrant scholars, and interspersed with some other decolonial episodes that take a break from the current pandemic. I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science and Christina Comer for her assistance. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share the episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We want to continue to support the scholars, activists, and artists who are putting decolonization in action. Thank you for joining us and stay safe and merry.